Well, we meet this morning, the first Lord's Day in the month of June, and it has been a long-standing tradition that at least most months of the year, when we begin a month, we do have an open forum. Uh, there was a question that was raised last week that uh, I'm kind of prepared to entertain this morning, and it was raised by uh, Mike Phillips. Mike, do you trust me to uh, represent your concerns, or would you like to speak them forth yourself this morning? I'll say it. Um, so, R. Scott Clark. R. Scott Clark is a professor of church history at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido, California. Go ahead. And a, a bit of a while ago, he made a statement basically disparaging Reformed Baptists as non-Reformed people. Um, he even went so far as to call us quasi-dispensationalists. <laughs> um, and I would like, for the record, to know why we are why we are reformed. Why baptism does not take away from our reformedness. Okay. And uh, essentially that. Okay. Labels, labels. What do you get labeled? Um, you know, church history is filled with varying views of how what the Word of God teaches. Every tradition uh, has to wrestle with what the scriptures say and um, part of what uh, gets wrestled with throughout the history of the church is particularly how the Bible hangs together in terms of this vast revelation God's given that goes from creation to new creation it goes from the beginning of the world to the end of the world it goes from protology first things to eschatology last things And it goes particularly with a major division that exists in history. Uh, We used to reflect this in the way we date things when we would speak about things being B.C. and A.D., uh, before the coming of Christ and uh, the year of our Lord. Of course, people want to change that before the common era and the common era. But still, the marking of before the common era and the common era is still the birth of Christ. I know they're off for about four years, probably accurately, when Jesus was actually born. But um, the point is, it is Jesus coming that really does make the difference in the way at least Western culture has divided history itself. But what do we do with our understanding of the coming of Jesus, in particular as it relates to the Old Testament, as it relates to the revelation God gave to Israel of old and the revelation he gives today. I mean, practices and things that the people of God in the Old Covenant were commanded to do, clearly we don't do. We don't come to a church meeting and bring sacrificial offerings. Uh, we don't come and have a, a, a mediating priest uh, who comes and uh, uh, brings those offerings on an altar. We don't, we don't have a, 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 an altar. We don't have a holy of holies. We don't have the things that Israel had in their instituted worship. Should we be doing those things? Should we be... Uh, uh, and there's good reasons that most Christians have said no. That those things were what the New Testament seems to say were types and shadows of things to come. Uh, They were pictures. God spoke in picture book language to the people of Israel uh, to bring them to an anticipation of the coming of Jesus. But the coming of Jesus is clearly the point of history that everything was tending towards. Uh, Paul could say, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, son born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born in the fullness of the times. And the idea of that is that everything prior was leading up to it. Everything prior was anticipating it. Everything prior 
um, was uh, a prelude to the great things God would do in the sending of his son. And uh, our life as God's people is always looking back to the reality that God has come in human history. He has sent his son. Uh, we do this in remembrance of him, the Jesus who came, the Jesus who died, the Jesus who rose, the Jesus who you know, presently reigns. Uh, and yet we have our Bibles in two testaments or two writings to two covenant people, a writing that was given to the Hebrews of old, the, the nation of Israel of old, and writings that pertain to the uh, New Testament people of God, the, the, the church. And how does it all hang together? And uh, part and parcel of how that uh, 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 understanding would lie would, would, would also mean things like, do we do what Israel did of old when uh, the uh, children of the, of, uh, of the people of Israel, uh, the least the males, were circumcised? Should we continue circumcision today? Should we view baptism as circumcision's successor? And baptize our children. And of course that makes a major point of difference between Pato-Baptists and Baptists. Now, we baptize upon profession of faith and we don't baptize just because they're our children. And they were born to us and that means in some way there's some special promise God's given to our children to convert them and to bring them to knowledge of himself. And so in anticipation of the promises we baptize our children. Well, this fellow, R. Scott Clark, he's uh, addressing him, uh, an audience on the internet, which he does often. He's a, a presence on Twitter. He's a presence on a blog that he does. And um, he tends in the direction of being sometimes acerbic, sometimes using language that's uh, 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 hostile towards the people he doesn't like. Uh, he probably doesn't have a hostile heart. But yet you go on the line, you go on the internet, and you tend to say things you wouldn't ordinarily say. Um, he also labored in, a, in labors at Westminster West, where there was a Baptist school for a number of years. I've always wondered what R. Scott Clark thought when Westminster West, a reformed institution in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, uh, decided to open up their school to a, a Baptist school. And they, uh, a Baptist professor was... Uh, uh, on the campus and there were courses that were given about Baptist history and Baptist uh, theology uh, well he probably didn't like it because R. Scott Clark is very much committed to the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith that's the Presbyterian Confession of Faith and uh, he would think that the essence of Reformed understanding or teaching that could call itself in any way having to do with the Reformation has to accord with that view not just in, in a small part, but in every single respect. And so a lot of things enter into it. A lot of things enter into how far do we go allowing a confession of faith to determine our outlook on everything, to, view our, to determine our outlook of how we see other people, whether we will say they're part of a club that, in, that belongs to us, or we say, no, we're protective of our identity, and whether it's as evangelicals, whether it's as reformed, whether it's as, whatever we want to call ourselves, and say we're, it's a closed it's a closed club that only gets gains admittance by uh, an adherence to the minutia of what our system of thought is, and um, so our Scott Clark is exclusionary. He would say reformed Baptists don't belong in a reformed uh, seminary. But of course, another church historian that was the president of the school, um, Robert Godfrey, thought it was perfectly fine <laughs> that um, Reformed Baptists or Baptists uh, would be part of uh, their, their, their club, and he would include them. 
within the Reformed tradition. And again, uh, how much of this is worth fighting over? Fighting over labels, fighting over what we call ourselves, um, especially when so much of it is pertains to human structures, how how we have come to see the Word of God within um, certain notions and ideas that we don't actually find in in the Bible. It's in our theology, and 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 it's been taught by theologians and church teachers and maybe confessions. And it can be useful and helpful in terms of teaching and instruction, certain things that are in the scriptures, but not to, it doesn't really reflect the things you actually find in the Bible itself. Now, and part of this is within the framework of uh, Reformed tradition. Let's talk about Reformed tradition. Now, we see ourselves as part of the Reformation tradition. And part of that is the recovery of the gospel, although it has to be argued how much was the gospel lost during the Middle Ages. Uh, There were believers in the Middle Ages. There were people that taught the word of God, that uh, clearly expounded the truth of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. There uh, There was a church that existed, but yet it was a church that existed in the midst of a great numbers of traditions that, in my mind, obscured the purity of biblical teaching. Doctrines such as Mary and devotion given to Mary detracts, in my mind, from the pure devotion we're called upon to give to Jesus Christ. There's no call in the Bible to be giving uh, divine honors or to be giving uh, a view uh, of, of, of our Lord's mother almost a uh, goddess uh, devotion. And we find that was true in Catholic devotion. And uh, we find it, it's, and, and again, it's different ways that people view that. And uh, some would interpret the honors given to Mary as just the honors you would give to a sainted woman in the church. And others would say, no, it goes beyond that. So there's all kinds of arguments and distinctions that belong to church history. But in the Reformed tradition, of course, we have those solas that speak of the sola scriptura, scriptures alone. And you know the rest, uh, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, uh, sola Christos, Christ alone, and sola Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Now again, that's a human structure too. That's a human idea. You don't go to the Bible and say, well, see that the Bible says uh, the church needs to hold to these five solas. You're not going to find the text of the Bible that says that. But we do believe that's the notion that is reflected in biblical passages that say our authority is the scriptures our faith is directed to Christ alone we're justified by faith alone in Christ uh, so we have biblical teaching that would say that's healthy stuff that's good stuff that's stuff we could hang our hats hats on we could hang our theology on and say well that's we're part of that tradition that sees uh, scripture as our authority rather than church tradition um, so we're part of that, and I would, I would, you know, Reformation Sunday comes along, and a group of churches wants to meet. We want to talk about the five souls. We say we, we're, we're into that. We're, yeah, we want to be part of that um, because we see that's part of the tradition that we're part of. Uh, but of course, when you look at that Reformed tradition, you note that uh, the reformers didn't have much of a place for what we have as part of our tradition as well, which is a Baptist tradition. We're part of a group of churches that um, holds to a tradition 
that with respect to the ordinance of baptism, says we baptize believers. We baptize those who by faith are actually joined to Jesus in union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now that's something that happens by faith. It doesn't happen by water. It happens by faith. But the water ritual is a picture of that faith relationship to Jesus. It pictures that union with Christ as we are plunged into water, we die with him, we're buried with him, we're raised with him in newness of life. So that's a picture that baptism sets forth. And we believe everybody that's part of the church should be baptized upon profession of faith. But this Reformed tradition believes that the church consists of believers and their children. And so they baptized their children, and they didn't reform the church at that point from what existed in Roman Catholicism. That Roman Catholicism held to, um, well, everybody in a given area of the state was part of the church. And so part of the unity of the realm, this really goes back to uh, a fellow by the name of Constantine back in the uh, 4th century. Constantine, when he was looking to unify the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was divided. You had uh, Rome, of course, the imperial city that at one time ruled over the entirety of the realm that was conquered by the Roman Empire. But the empire got so big that at a certain point they divided it up. You had an eastern empire, you had a western empire. Constantine came along and uh, his victory, what was it, the Milvian Bridge, I think it was. That was Constantine, the Milvian Bridge. And he supposedly conquered under the sign of Christ on the shields of the soldiers. There was a cross or something. that uh, It was under the sign of Christ. And so he then allowed Christianity to exist. And he believed that Christianity along with his army and his military victories would unite the empire so that there would be one empire under one emperor and having one religion and one faith. And that's why when you had the problem with a a guy by the name of Arius teaching that Jesus wasn't truly God, it was Constantine that pressed for an ecumenical council, the uh, Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., came as a result of the instigation of Constantine. In fact, he was present. He didn't have a voice. It was the bishops. It was the, you know, the Bible, reading Bible, teaching um, bishops of the church that had the voice, but yet Constantine saw it as a means of, of we got to get this right because everybody has to have the same faith. And uh, so that became what was known as the sacral state, uh, the sacred state. The state was holy. Every member was, every citizen was a member of the church. And, and that continued in the Reformed tradition. The only thing that changed was what religion you were part of. That when in, in, in Lutheran areas and in areas, of course, in the city of Geneva, when the Reformation took over, then they stopped uh, doing Mass and they stopped having Catholic worship and they start doing Reformed worship. And so they, but it was all under the government of the city or the principality, as the princes of Germany, their electors, were the ones that determined whether the, Revol- the Reformation would take hold or Catholicism would reign. It was all a matter of the civil authority. That's one of the reasons this Reformation tradition was called the Magisterial Reformation, because the magistrates, the civil leaders, had a big hand in it. 
It's not to say it wasn't a spiritual movement of God. It's not to say it was not uh, genuine Christianity that was being recovered by theologians like Luther and Calvin. Just read their sermons. (laughs) And you see that there was a special reality of biblical truth and the anointing of the Spirit that, that governed those men. And yet they worked in concert with civil authority. Um, Baptists, however, broke up the monopoly. They said there are people in the church that, that they, they could be citizens of the state, but not part of the church. Uh, we don't baptize our children. And an unfortunate thing happened. Think of the Reformation. Reformation. Luther put up his um, 95 theses, and I broke my chalk, uh, 1517. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was about maybe 17 years later, somewhere around 1534 or 5. Anybody know what happened then that affected this whole business of Baptists in, uh, in the Reformed world? Uh, something happened in the city called Munster. That's not only a place where you get great cheese. I think it's Munster cheese that comes from there. But it was a city that... <coughs> The Baptists began to proliferate. They began to preach and teach, and they got their mayor of Munster and leaders of the city of Munster to decide, well, we want to be a Reformed church, but we don't want to be a paedo-Baptist Reformed church because we have these Baptists that are teaching us. We want to be a Baptist state church. Now, for us who are genuinely Baptists, who believe in the separation of church and state, that the church is a spiritual organism, an entity that is comprised of true believers, and it's not to be identified with the state. We recoil at the notion of a Baptist state church. But actually, there was a Baptist state church in Munster for a little while. I think maybe a year, something like that, before the Lutheran leaders determined, let's get together an army and oust these radicals. They had basically taken over and they basically declared it to be the New Jerusalem. And it was extreme. It was um, a movement that was uh, beyond the pale of even uh, sober biblical exegesis at some points. The extremists took over. And of course this is on the heels of what was called the Peasant War. And some of us who have seen the Luther movies, you remember the, all the things that were happened of the taking down of uh, the, the, the destroying of churches and monasteries and things like that, that was also something that had to be suppressed. And so, because of the radical Reformation, there was the suppression, particularly of Baptists. But we hold to a Baptist tradition. And we hold, in terms of baptism, with those crazy guys in Munster who took over. There's still a lot of sober ones. There were some genuine believers, of course, there. But as movements like that happen, the crazies take over. You know, you might have some very sane and sober Republicans in Washington, D.C. at the 6th of January, but it gets taken over by the mob. So that happens. And so that sort of stuff has to get suppressed, or at least the leaders of the government thinks it has to get suppressed. So from that point forward, Baptists were persecuted. The Baptists did find refuge in a number of places, and we'll say something about that later. But anyway, let me, let me say this. With regard to this whole business, um, again, I think as Baptists, we can hold to a Reformed tradition with regard to the souls, with regard to 95% of the things that are found in the Reformed confessions. 
In fact, our Baptist Confession of 1689, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, does whatever they can, wherever they can, to just simply copy what the Westminster Confession of Faith said. And at points that they can't, they adopt what was called the Savoy Declaration, which was what a group of people called the Independents or the Congregationalists, things that they came up with in areas where they believed in a congregational form of church government. And then there were things that were Baptist stuff. I'm not sure exactly where they got all of it. But um, at the Reformation, as Baptist people, we would not be included. We would not be deemed to be part. We would be, but it's not so much that our faith is vastly different, but we would be a threat to the society. We would be a threat to the civil order. And that would be the reason we would be oppressed and we would be persecuted, largely. Um, but as things happen, as things move on, you find a development of a Reformed tradition that brings in elements in successive generations that maybe weren't there at the beginning. And, and, and part of this is where R. Scott Clark comes in. Because later on, in, in the 16th century, um, particularly in, in Holland, uh, you had movements that looked to undermine the Reformed confessions. Uh, something called Arminianism, The spelling there, I think, is almost almost right. And then there's another thing called Amaraldianism. Um, basically, this thing here is, is a denial of the basic sovereignty of God in salvation. It looked to put the, uh, uh, the, the, the distinguishing factor in the salvation of people in terms of the human will, almost like the will was not really affected dramatically by the fall. Now again, there's, you know, we don't believe that the will is not important in the gospel. We appeal to the wills of people that they would be willing to come to Christ. Christ is on offer, fully on offer. Uh, offer. Um, but Arminianism basically said, it's kind of the revival of an earlier church heresy called, um, I'm sorry, Augustine opposed, what was it called? The, 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 the British guy that went around saying, um, Pelagian, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's a revivalist Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. And the church argued that and called it a heresy back in the 5th century, in the days of St. Augustine. And Arminianism was something of a revival of that. And so then the church has to meet. It comes up with its own teachings with respect to the, the work of Jesus. Uh, Amaralianism comes along, and their thing was the atonement. Uh, who did Christ die for? Was particularly the thing that it argued out there. And... Um, the church has to respond to that. And part of the way that the Dutch churches began to respond to that in the 16th century, and here you're talking here about, let's say, uh, 1630s uh, and 40s, a Synod of Dort that responded to Arminianism, that was 1610, so some 20 years later. You have theologians that are developing something that was called the Doctrine of the Covenants. The Doctrine of the Covenants. Now, you have to be clear that the Reformed teachers 
like Calvin and his institutes, didn't teach this. He didn't have a developed Reformed theology. Uh, I know that there are guys like R. Scott Clark, they like to read Calvin as if he... You know, they impose their covenant theology on Calvin. But Calvin's concern, here's what Calvin's concern was. His concern was the Old Testament. Does the Old Testament teach us about Jesus? Is Jesus present in the Old Testament? He's concerned with salvation. Is there one way of salvation or numerous ways of salvation? And Calvin's teaching on things that they would say is covenant theology in Calvin was really his teaching the unity of salvation. There's only one salvation. And so from the time of the fall, there's only one way of life. And he sees Jesus as prefigured in uh, Genesis 3.15 that the... that. there will be the one who will bruise the serpent's head. There's Jesus. Jesus is the one who will bruise the serpent's head. Of course, the New Testament sees that as being true. That Jesus is the one who comes to bruise the serpent's head. And hence that brings salvation. And so the gospel salvation was seen in the Old Testament through understanding prophetic words, through understanding that Christ was present as part of the triune God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who's active and involved in the life of the nation of Israel, the Jehovahship of Jesus, all the references in the Old Testament to Jehovah that the New Testament says is true of Jesus. I want to thunder that whenever I see the Jehovah's Witnesses ladies over by the, the rail trail where I go walking almost daily. And I want to say, the Jehovahship of Jesus. First of all, you got it wrong. It's probably the Yahwehship of Jesus. The Y-H-W-H, those four Hebrew letters, is the name of God. The name of God is the name of Jesus. He was given the name that's above every name. What name is that? The name of Yahweh. It's the name of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament God is, is, is revealed in Jesus. He is the God of Israel. And anyway, so that's Calvin's concern. But this Reformed tradition developed this new thing. And it was called covenant theology. And it looked to say, well, everything in the Bible is to be understood as kind of emanating from a three different covenants. Now, I had a problem with this when I was, you know, I was learning biblical teaching. I was learning Reformed theology. And I went to a Bible college in New Jersey for a couple of semesters. I took a course in biblical theology and I decided I want to understand this whole business of covenant theology more. What in the world are they talking about? So when I had to do my paper, my term paper, I decided to do it on what's called the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. Uh, What covenant theology does, it posits this three covenants. There's a covenant of works, a covenant of grace, and a covenant of redemption. And it gets confusing. Uh, I don't know how much you want me to get into this, but again, this is not in the Bible. I found that out. <laughs> and I found it out largely by trying to figure out what are these theologians talking about when they're talking about the covenant of grace. And so I began to read a lot of the representative theologians, and I found out that one thing was clear. They weren't agreeing with one another. They were not all speaking the same thing about these things. This is kind of a movement that was sort of in flux, and you have certain traditions of it that emphasize one thing rather than another thing. And some of it was good. Some of it was health, health, helpful. But some of it was really confusing, especially as you compared. And I never really was able to kind of key in on what in the world are they talking about. 
got to with my pastor. I'm in a church supposedly in tune with covenant theology. And I said, you know, I'm reading these people and I don't really get what they're talking about. Uh, could you help me out? Oh, just read the representative theologians. I've read them, but I still don't get it. Anyway, so, um, but as I grew as a Christian and understanding what some of these people were doing, was I realized that these three covenants, as they define it, are not found in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about a covenant of works. It doesn't talk about a, a covenant of grace. And again, all of God's covenants are, are, are gracious. But, but I mean, even the, even the uh, covenant that was with Moses on Mount Sinai was a matter of grace. You know, God didn't have to enter into covenant with them. He took them on eagle's wings. He brought them out of Egyptian bondage. He said, I will be God to you. You will be my people. He enters into a covenant with them. But the things that the theologians are talking about, the things that the Bible are talking about, are simply not the same things. These are human constructs. And they can be helpful. A lot of times human constructs can be helpful. But now, our Scott Clark comes along and says, well, I'm, a reform, I'm in this Reformed tradition. We have our, our Confession of Faith, like Westminster Theology, uh, uh, Confession of Faith, and it has a statement about all this stuff, and I would say confusing statements about all this stuff. And this mean, means that Baptists need not apply, <laughs> because Baptists are over here in this other world of things that he says is quasi-dispensationalism. That's another thing of a mouthful. But, you know, when you study this matter of what dispensationalism is, you're not dealing with the 15th century at all. Or, I'm sorry, the 16th century at all. You're not dealing with the 17th century. You're not dealing with the 18th century. You come into the 19th century. I'm sorry. Yeah, 19th century. And you have dispensationalism begins uh, uh, with the Darby. Darby in England. and uh, it, I won't get into it. But it's a new thing. It's, it's the new kids on the block. Yeah, sorry, uh, I don't know. Justin Timberlake was in that. I don't know. He was in one of those bands. Insect, I think. Anyway, um, that's the new kid on the block. So Arkansas Clark comes along and says, no, Baptists need not apply to this. You're here in this. What Baptist was ever there? Not the 16th century Baptist, not the 17th century Baptist. And this is a church historian that's telling you this. So, I think, first of all, we all have to be honest with the history of this stuff. We have to be honest with whether the things we say we believe are reflected, reflective of biblical teaching or not. And then we have to be kind and generous with other groups of people. We shouldn't want to exclude them from our club if they're in Christ's club. If they're in the club with Jesus, if they're part of Jesus' people, then we should have a very tender heart towards them and not want to just uh, willy-nilly say, well, we're going to say something unkind about them and say, well, you can't be part of our club, you're in this club instead, quasi. It's unkind and it's untrue and it's unfair and uh, it's just not reflective of uh, anything that happened in history because Baptists desperately wanted to be part of this group that was going back to the Bible. They're going back to justification by faith. They're going back to biblical teaching. And again, none of us get it all right in any of this. So we have to be kind to one another. We have to be willing to be accepting of one another. How do we figure we're part of the Reformed tradition, or as I just think is a biblical tradition, and we exclude baptism? Well, first of all, we recognize that the arguments of Pado baptists are just not good. They're just not good. 
when you think of the Reformed tradition, uh, you really have to think of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion as being expressive of that Reformed tradition of the 16th century. And when you go to Calvin's Institutes, and I did this just this week because this was going through my mind, and and I read through his section on, on baptism, and he does not mention covenant theology. He didn't believe in, he didn't have covenant theology to refer to. It was not part of his world. But he's constantly going back to the difference or the similarities between circumcision and baptism. And he was saying, well, you have an Old Testament circumcision ordinance that included children, at least the male children of people. And based on that, we cannot deny baptism to our children because there's some promise that's bound up in baptism that we are denying to our children. So it's a little bit of child cruelty. It's a little bit of depriving our children of their full rights as our children that they should also be incorporated into the Christian church and receive Christian baptism. And he bases it upon making a correlation between Abraham and his children, or his seed, and believers and their seed. And that's not a good, good way of viewing things, because Abraham and his seed is very clearly, particularly in the New Testament, defined theologically as in, embracing two groups of people. When you think of Abraham, oh, I don't have any room here, you think of Abe and, and his seed. You have two kinds of seed, don't you? You have a physical progeny, his literal children, when God gave him a son, and it wasn't a son through Hagar, it was a son through Sarah, it wasn't the the sons of Keturah, the the seed of the promise went through Isaac. Isaac was his seed, and then uh, there was an Esau in the next generation, it was it was Jacob, and then the 12 tribes, and then the tribe becomes a nation, and they became the seed of Abraham. And that seed of Abraham was to receive circumcision. And that's not only there in the terms of uh, what God told Abraham in 17, chapter 17 of Genesis, but it's also true in the, in the law. The people of Israel were circumcised before they went into the land. Um, there had to be circumcision. Uh, and uh, but Abraham's seed has another meaning in the New Testament when you think of Abraham and his seed what in Paul does that refer to? what's that? heirs of the promise look at Galatians chapter 3 I thought we'd get into the Bible eventually last 15 minutes I hope this wasn't lost on you. It's just some of this historic things that happened, that went on in history of the church. But we have to be honest about our history. And we just can't say, well, you know, we want to make an argument to exclude, especially when we want to exclude people rather than include them, to make an argument of this nature. But um, here in chapter um, 3 of, of Galatians, in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Offspring is just a modern translation for seed. Sperma is the, is the Greek. It's his, it's his seed. It's his children. Had, had by you know, natural generation. 
And it does not say, Paul makes a distinction between the seed in its plural and singular forms. It, it does not say the seed as the offsprings, or the seed is referring to the many, but referring to one, and to your seed who is Christ. That in a real sense, Christ is Abraham's seed. And he's the one to whom the promises belong. But then it's through Christ, there are others who are also incorporated into the Israel of God. There are others who become part of the covenant people of God through faith in this Jesus who is the offspring of Abraham. And so you have at the end of the chapter, in verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So Jesus is the true seed that was being spoken of when God said, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But ultimately, that did not get fulfilled in Israel. All the nations were not blessed in Israel. Just read the history. Read the history of the, of the judges. Read the history of the kings. Read the history of the captivity. It, it just didn't happen. Never happened. But yet, Paul's arguing there was a singular seed of Abraham who comes in the person of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And that it's Jesus who is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. And when Jesus sends his church out to make disciples of the nations and we become to believe in him, we become incorporated into the Israel of God. Paul uses in Romans 11 that analogy of the the olive tree, of the branches that were broken off, the unbelieving Israelites. And then the Gentiles who believe, they're grafted in. We become part of the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Abraham and his seed does not equal believers and their seed. That's the mistake. Is they take Abraham and his seed, Abraham had to have his seed circumcised, therefore believers are to have their seed baptized, is just to ignore the fact that Abraham's seed has technical definition in the Bible. Yes, the covenant sign should be given to all of Abraham's physical seed in terms of circumcision. No doubt. That's God's command to the people of Israel. It's part of the covenant God made at Sinai, that circumcision should be given to all the male children. But in the New Covenant, there's a different definition change. Abraham and his seed is now believers. First of all, it's Jesus, and then those who believe in Jesus become the seed of Abraham. We become the children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. And we say, you want to give Abraham seed baptism? Great, that's believers. You give believers baptism, right? Abraham's seed are those who come into union with God through Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. It's believers that are getting baptized. That's fine. But it doesn't equal believers in their seed. Do you see that distinction? Okay? So that's the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is that this change in definition of Abraham and his seed happens in the New Testament because there is a change of covenant. Book of Hebrews argues that out. That there's a change in covenant. If the old covenant could have made people perfect, the writer of the Hebrews argues, then there would be, you know, you'd still have the Levitical priesthood, you'd still have the yearly atonements, but it made nothing perfect and nobody perfect. 
And what God has done is he's made a change of the covenant. He's made a change of the law. He's made a change in the mediator. There's been an alteration of all these things that the Old Testament spoke about because of the coming of Jesus. He makes all things new. And he changes all things new so that we're not under an old covenant any longer. We are under a new covenant. Now, one of the real problems, I think, with the differences between Paedo-Baptists and Baptists is that the Paedo-Baptists fail to see the newness of the new covenant. What makes the new covenant new? And uh, I think there was a debate I heard about, supposedly R.C. Sproul, and I think it was, I was told it was Alistair Begg were arguing this thing or in the debate with this thing. And that question was raised, and R.C. Sproul said, it said, there's Gentile inclusion. <laughs> Door's been opened to the Gentiles. And that's it. That's it. But it's not it. Yes, Gentile inclusion is part of it. Part of the transformation of the new covenant is that the gospel opens up to the world. Through, his, through, through Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. But there's also something different else that's true of the new covenant community. And it's defined in the promise of the new covenant that we find in Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, if you wanted to find the differences of the new covenant, you, you should do it biblically, shouldn't you? You should say, well, what was God promising would happen when the days of the Messiah would come? When the days of this great transformation would come? When the, when the fullness of the time had come and God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that are under the law, what was it that was in, incomplete or unsatisfactory or imperfect about the old covenant that made this new covenant come in Jesus to be needed? Well, here it is. Again, Jeremiah is writing to a people that are under covenant curse. They are about to go into captivity. And now, in the light of the captivity, God's speaking about new days to come. He's speaking about a day when he's going to revive his work among Israel, among his people. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will make a new covenant with my covenant people. And this new covenant with his covenant people is going to be not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke because it didn't bring it to the Gentiles. Well, not really. That's not the, that's not the weakness of it. That's not the heart of the thing. That's true. The they didn't fulfill their calling to be a blessing to the nations but that's not what God seizes upon here he says in verse 33 for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares Yahweh I will put my law now the law pertained to the old covenant community didn't it? God gave his law how did he give his law in the old covenant community? On stone? What's that? On stone? He wrote it on tables of stone. Right? He did other things. He spoke it with an audible voice from heaven. Um, but he wrote it on tables of stone. The permanence of the law was that it was inscribed on tables of stone. But now God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Why does God need to do that? Well, because writing it externally on tables of stone doesn't accomplish this. Israel had the covenant written on tables of stone, 
But they didn't have the covenant written in their hearts. They didn't have the law of God written in their hearts. It was external to them, not internal in them. God says, now, my law is going to be inward. There will be inward instruction in their hearts upon their minds and their hearts. Then the Lord says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's familiar. God spoke that to Israel. You'll be God to me, and you will be my people. But yet he said, if you keep my words, if you keep my words, that's the problem. They didn't keep his words because the law was never written in their hearts. And then he says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. Now when you go around your family, you go around the neighborhood, and you start to tell people, do you know the Lord? You need to know the Lord. I want to invite you to know the Lord. The Lord wants you to know Him. He has expressed in His Word the knowledge of Him that you can come to know personally. I'm here to offer you the knowledge of God. What's that called? That's evangelism, isn't it? That's evangelism. And the kind of evangelism that was taking place in Israel was not that they were evangelizing the nations. That's what they should have been doing. They should have been a blessing to the nations. But they had to go around to the neighborhood in Israel. They had to go through the streets of Judah. They go to the streets of Dan. They had to go through the streets of Ephraim and Manasseh. And say to Jews, you need to know the Lord. You don't know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. But in the new covenant, there should no longer be a need internally within the covenant community to evangelize. You evangelize outwardly in the world, but not within the covenant community. The people of the Lord know the Lord. They have the law of God written in their hearts, and they know the Lord. There's the knowledge of the Lord, inwardly, experientially. There's a relationship established between God's people and the God they worship and they serve. They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That's not universal knowledge of God, but it's the universal knowledge of God within the covenant community. And then there's a final thing. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What happens when your sins are forgiven? What could be said about someone whose sins have been forgiven? What's that? They're saved. They've been, to use the technical language of Paul's letter, they've been justified by faith. They believed. They're believers. They're believers. Jeremiah is anticipating a day when all the covenant community will be believers. All the covenant community will know the Lord. All the covenant community will have his law, not external but internal, written in their minds and written in their hearts. That's a difference, isn't it? That's a change. That's a, that's a radical change. Yes. No. 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 Tulip is different. Tulip has to do with the mechanics of salvation, but this has to do with things like authority and the way we get saved. So, yeah, these are the more evangelical sort of things. Tulip is more theological. It's more, yeah, yeah. But those are things that were argued out here with regard to Arminianism. But that's that's another another story. But I think everybody here in the Reformed tradition would have ascribed basically to what the five uh, points are, or the tulip. But uh, that was, that's also a later discussion. 
that, that happened in the 1600s, not in the 1500s. Okay? But, um, so let's get back to this. How, why is the new covenant new? Well, because it has a new people. It's, has, it's constituted as a new kind of community. It's not a community of a mixed multitude of believers and unbelievers. At least not by design. Now, that's not to say unbelievers don't come among the people of God. And that's the big objection that Peter Baptist gave. Well, how do you know the hearts of people? Well, we don't. No one knows the hearts of people. All we can do is make judgments upon what are um, charitable, you know, is something believable? Is something credible? You know, you know, if somebody comes into the, the church and you know they're, they're they're clearly stoned out of their minds and you know they've just spent the night in the, some kind of a the, you know, compromised sexual relation and say, well, this church is great. I love this church. I just want to be part of this church. Can I join the church? We probably say, fella, first of all, you got to sober up. <laughs> we, need, we maybe need to talk about some moral issues before we think of uniting you to the church. It's based upon a credible profession of faith. We, something that's believable. And it doesn't mean we always get it right. But you see, the purity of the church is guaranteed not only by the way in which we admit people, but also the fact that there's a back door to the thing called the church discipline. Sometimes people have to be disciplined and there can be such a thing as putting them out of the community if there's just a complete abandonment of every kind of Christian value that they express and exhibit. So, uh, but the church is by rights pure. It's not always actually pure, but you know, there's a you know, there used to be the question, we had this with segregation in the United States in the 60s, what they called de facto and de jure. You all remember that? De facto segregation and de jure segregation? Well, de, de jure segregation is what you had in the South. There are actual laws, actual laws in the South that said black people cannot ride buses or can't sit in the same seats as white people and they can't use the same facilities and they have to go to different schools. That's segregation de jure by law, legal segregation. But in the North, they had de facto segregation. The fact was that everything was segregated. It wasn't by law. Maybe it was by the way banks would give mortgages or you know, where people could live and couldn't live. Just the way things were done that we talk today about systemic. Systemic stuff. Stuff that just has to do with the way things run. That there was, uh, in fact... De facto segregation. Well, de facto, the church can have lots of blots and blemishes and many such things. But de jure, by rights, by rights of God's commandment, we shouldn't be allowing it to have blots and blemishes and many such things. Because that's not the, the destiny of the church, certainly, and it's not what we should be seeking. We should be seeking the purity of the church even though we know we'll never fully realize it. Just like sanctification in your own life, you know, you, you seek to you seek to be perfect as He is perfect, with the full recognition you're not going to be perfect until you get to glory. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have high aspirations, right? So, to me, that's the difference. But so, you know, it's on the basis of understanding that the new covenant community is different. The new covenant community has the knowledge of God. The New Covenant community has the law written in hearts and minds. The New Covenant community are believers who are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And um, so, you know, that's why we do uh, hold to our Baptist understanding, but yet it arises out of our teaching concerning the covenants. Our understanding that, the, that the, it's the new covenant that's the final definitive covenant that every other covenant is uh, pointing to. You know, Paul could speak in Ephesians about the covenants plural of the singular promise. There's a promise of one people of God. There's a promise of one way of salvation. And all the covenants point to it. All the covenants hold forth the same promise. But the only way that promise is fulfilled is in the new covenant that Jesus says he inaugurates through the shedding of his blood. Take this and drink. This is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's the covenant that's sealed in Christ's blood that alone can achieve what the promise sets forth. But again, all the, pro- all the promises set forth, the, all, all the covenants of the Old Testament, the many historic covenants, not this stuff here, which is not biblical or historical, that's construct, that's human ideas of how we think that things work. Uh, you know, to me, that's questionable. It can be insightful, and it can be helpful at many levels, but it's also questionable because it's not rooted and grounded in the text of Holy Scripture. And that's what we need to always be coming back to, is taking these notions and ideas that are propounded by people, and, uh, I mean, good people. People that want to be honest with God's Word, who want to tell you things work in accordance with God's Word. But let's try to ground it in what the Scriptures themselves actually teach. It's hard when you come to the realization that we learn lots of things about theology that are helpful and good, and but is it what it actually teaches in the Word of God? That's still an open question. I know when I first became involved in reform, the Reformed tradition, I never asked. I just said, what does the tradition say? And then I saw Phil on the roof, tradition? <laughs> you just can't always go by the traditions. You have to see the traditions that are good and helpful. It, all that's insightful. I don't despise this stuff. Again, it's kind of like when I read John Murray on Romans 7. I loved everything he said, but I just don't see that that's what's in the text of the book of Romans. So it's not that what people are saying is, is bad or evil or wrong or to be just rejected out of hand. It's just that we would do much better, I think, by just attempting to root and ground everything as much as we can in, in the Word of God. So I've taken up my time. I hope some of this has been helpful. Maybe it's raised more questions than <laughs> we had at the beginning. Some of you never heard of R. Scott Clark. Now you know him. Some of you maybe never heard of Covenant Theology. Now you know a little bit about it. So I hope, at least to that extent, some of this has been enlightening. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this uh, time to consider these matters. Some of it is historical. Some of it is the way in which the churches look to see your word in, in terms that uh, may, many times is, is, is human and but yet helpful at many points. But Lord, we, we pray that your word always would have the final say. We always come back to the scriptures to understand what is it that you want from us? What is it that you, you have said and desire from, from your people? Give us to be uh, biblical Christians in the fullest sense. But also give us to be charitable Christians, not to be excluding people just out of line because, well, there's aspects of what they teach we don't like. But Lord, help us as much as possible to be at one with the, with, the, with the other believers. Just find areas of, of agreement and concord where we can 
see things together um, that uh, will truly be helpful to further um, relationships of love and, uh, and, and solidarity and, and mutual commitment. So, Lord, we pray even people like R. Scott Clark would have a ten- more tender heart towards his Baptist brothers and sisters and that we would all have uh, tender hearts towards one another. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless the things we've considered as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.